This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today's subject is diversity and inclusion in the construction industry. Many studies have shown that profitability and success are directly tied to inclusivity and diversity. In fact, it's been recognized that limited workforce diversity has been named a top risk to the construction industry. So how is the construction industry doing? To answer that question, our guest today is Lance Curry. Good afternoon, Lance. Afternoon. Thanks for appearing on the podcast. Let me ask you a little bit about your practice, and in particular, your involvement in the diversity issue. Uh, Sure. Um, So I'm an attorney at Carrington Coleman here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, My practice is primarily construction and real estate, uh, working on helping people solve problems when things go wrong. But I also serve as the head of the diversity inclusion efforts at my firm uh, and have been working on that issue for quite some time. I think, Lance, you're also active in the ABA Forum on Construction Law? I am. I've been uh, coming to meetings for quite a while now. One of my partners, Kathy Altman, has been active for quite a while. She's on the governing committee, and she has roped me in, and it's just been a wonderful experience. I've met some really great people through the forum and through my involvement there. Well, thanks for uh, being involved. You know, I was thinking a little bit in preparing for today's episode. You, as a, a younger white male, probably wouldn't be the uh, character that we would expect to be talking about diversity. So let's begin by finding out um, how did you get interested in the subject and what's been your involvement? Well, my uh, my father is a former Baptist preacher and a, has a PhD in Christian ethics. And, and for a variety of reasons, we had lots of long road trips when I was a kid, and that involved lots of long ethical conversations. And, and racial equity is something that my dad has always been top of his mind and things he's thought about. And and so, you know, it's, you know, I grew up having a conversation about, you know, sort of the way the world is and the way it ought to be. That's probably the start. And so where, where are you today in terms of your efforts in that regard? Well, you know, as I, uh, I got involved in the community here in Dallas and, uh, you know, at one point decided I, I was running a, a young professionals organization that I wanted to host a, a conversation on race and learn quickly that there's so much I don't know. Uh, that led to a, uh, being part of a planning group of a, a training session for young professionals that got really in-depth. And, and that was really the first time this uh, you know, racial equity became personal to me, hearing the stories of, of people having to deal with things that I, as, a, as quite frankly, a white guy, just don't have to think about. Um, and, and that disparity and opportunity and challenges is something that you know, is a moral issue for me and, and something I've gotten real passionate about. Let's start at the beginning. As you may have heard in the introduction, people probably like to know, how's the construction industry doing at this point? Well, it's uh, it's improving, but as you might imagine, it's got a long uh, way to go. So 
you know, for example, I think half of our society is women, but 9% of our of the construction industry is women. You'll see a lot of different challenges in terms of, of typically most of the supervisors, most of the people, you know, running the project sites are going to be white men, even though a lot of the labor workforce has become much more ethnically diverse and has been for quite some time. So there's been progress. You see some the numbers ticking up and moving, but relative to other industries, there's still quite a bit of disparity. I've always been interested when I work with construction companies and I visit sites that despite efforts at diversity, the senior and leadership personnel always seem to be in that white male category. How's the industry doing in terms of getting more diverse people into those kinds of positions? Well, there, you know, a lot of companies are starting to work on and have been, spend, been spending time on diversity inclusion efforts. And so I think that's, you know, that's the start as companies recognizing that we can do better and making those efforts to do better. And it's also, you know, it's not just for the sake of diversity for diversity's sake, the, the industry needs to do it for its own health. You know, as, as we've often talked about, you know, there's a, there's a big labor shortage right now. And one of the ways in which we can try to attract and retain others to come into our industry uh, is to make it welcoming and inclusive and diverse uh, so that all people feel comfortable coming in. Let's talk a little bit about the risks to the industry as a result of the fact that in terms of diversity currently, we're doing okay, but not great. Yeah, and that, that does lead to some risks, and that's you know really the topic that we're going to focus on when we speak at the ABA's fall meeting here in a couple of weeks on diversity and inclusion, is how risk plays interact with diversity and inclusion. And, and we see it in a couple of different ways. We see it impacting opportunity risk, safety risk, legal risk, and reputational risk. Uh, you want to break those down a little bit? Yeah, let's let's talk about it. First of all, the term opportunity risk. What does that mean? Well, what we mean by that is, you know, it starts with just trying to create a productive. Every company wants a productive workforce, and most of the data will show you that the more diverse, the more inclusive your company is, the the better employees feel like they're a part of the company as a whole, and the more productive they are. And then beyond that, there's simply a when you look at the data. More diverse companies tend to have better outcomes, not just in the construction industry, but in all industries. And there's a variety of reasons for that, from being more attractive to talent. But one of them that I, th- I find fascinating is improving our decision making. You know, when you get a whole bunch of people in a room that look like me, they tend to think a lot like me. And if you get people with varied backgrounds, you get varied thinking. And that creates more innovative thinking uh, and better decision making. That's one of these uh, risks that really caught my attention. You had mentioned that safety is impacted by diversity. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, there's just a, there's several safety considerations. I, I think if you start at the beginning, you know, we, we in the construction industry have a reputation of the sort of male toughness type. Hey, you know, I, I, you know, don't worry, I'll tough it out and I'll make it work. And one, that creates a lot of safety hazards. If people are hurt or people need to step away from uh, their job, they need to feel comfortable to be able to do that. So that's a pretty obvious one. But there's some other interesting ones. Um, you know, language is one that I think we're all familiar with. And we have some obligations uh, through OSHA and others as participants in the construction industry to create safe environments. And there aren't exceptions for language barriers. So you have to present safety information and create a safe environment in a way that all people can understand regardless of language. Those are a couple of things that jump out at me. But don't having multiple languages uh, on a particular job site increase costs? 
It may, um, and that's something that potentially could increase costs, but at the same time, that's not an excuse not to create a safe environment. If that's what you have to do in order to make sure that, you, that your employees are, are able to come to work, uh, do their job well, and then go home intact, that's just something you have to do and something we need to do. I'm curious about the legal risk, as you mentioned it. I've heard people say that if you have increased diversity, that leads to a reduced risk of anti-discrimination claims and problems. Is that true? I think that's a misnomer. I think that's a that's a, the wrong way of thinking about it. And, and and part of that is understanding the difference between diversity and inclusion. And those are two terms that people use together a lot, but they really do mean different things. You know, diversity is about you know bringing in the broad spectrum of humanity, but it's often about numbers. Um, you know, do I have this many of this type of person versus that type of person? Inclusion is more of a culture. And how that plays into your question is if I have a culture that is not inclusive, that is not welcoming, uh, for example, to people of color, but I increase my diversity by adding a whole bunch more people of color, I really just added a bunch more targets to hostility. I haven't really solved my diversity inclusion problem. So if you really want to work on reducing legal risks related to diversity and inclusion, it starts with focusing on inclusion in particular and creating an, an open environment where all feel welcome. How do you decrease the risk that you describe in terms of these kinds of claims for discrimination and so on, where you have a workforce that's not traditionally inclusive? Well, you have to work at it. You know, it's something that, you know, diversity inclusion doesn't happen just on its own. It requires effort um, and it requires thinking about ways in which uh, you could try to improve your diversity inclusion. Um, you know, traditional models that try to combat discrimination issues, you know, sort of police the thoughts of managers, you know, using tools to try to make make their hiring decisions appear to be as transparent as possible. But they But they really are focused on saying, hey, if you do X, we're going to catch you and they're going to stop you from doing that. That's really not very effective. Most of the research says what you really need to do is focus on recruitment programs, focus on creating task forces, opportunities for people to have their voice heard. Those are much more effective ways to become a more diverse and inclusive company. Now, can a construction company do that and also stay competitive? I think they have to do that to stay competitive. And that's because as other companies adapt and create environments that are more welcoming to top talent, that talent is going to gravitate to those companies. And that's what you see in the data is, is the companies that are working on this issue are performing better than those that are not. Well, maybe that brings us to the last risk that you mentioned, and that's the reputational risk. What's that about? That is what we see in the news, unfortunately, way too often. That's uh, that's Harvey Weinstein. That's that's a lot of those issues, and that's Uber. And you know, you you, I don't need to dwell too long just to simply say that if you don't solve these issues and you have pervasive problems uh, with a culture that's not inclusive, uh, it can spiral out of control and lead to some significant consequences. But that kind of work by a construction company requires time and effort. How do you advise your clients as to how that fits into the equation? Could you uh, clarify your question a little bit? I'm not following. Sure. Those kinds of efforts at including diverse workers into what you do right. takes time and money, a commitment. How do you talk to your clients about taking those steps, even though, as you mentioned, they do cost money? 
Well, I think you have to work through and help a client think through not only the immediate cost, but the long-term benefits. You know, these the companies that we work for, they want to be here longer than a short period of time. They want to be here for the long time building some amazing projects. And so to do that, you need to retain good talent and you need to be attractive to clients who are looking for contractors that are uh, often working on this issue. And you need to ultimately build a culture in which your employees feel excited to go to work. And and really what we're talking about is not any different than other than the companies have done in the past in terms of trying to make work uh, some place that their employees are proud of. It's just recognizing that not all employees look the same and to broaden their view when they're thinking about how can I make employees feel welcome. So does that cost a little money? It might, but it's also similar to the kinds of efforts that any company ought to be thinking about when they're trying to make sure that their company is growing and becoming successful in there for the long haul. We'll take a short break and be back with more of the podcast in just a moment. We're back with Lance Curry. We've been talking about the subject of diversity and inclusion in the construction industry. Lance, let's talk a little bit about a subject that's always interested me, and that is the attempts by federal and state governments to socially engineer the construction workplace, I suppose, for the benefit of society. Why are they doing that? Well, thank you for jumping right in with a very easy question. Uh, you know, I, I think we as a society have recognized that historically we have not created opportunities for people that look different to have the same opportunities as others. And we're trying to rectify that. And so I think uh, that's what government's doing. What are some of the specific ways that uh, federal government states do that? Well, I think a lot of people in our industry are familiar with, you know, MWBE and DBE programs. Um, and that's, uh, I think, you know, in our industry, there's a lot of efforts to try to, you know, diversify subs and others to, to try to create opportunities for others. And that, you know, creates some interesting challenges. Speaking of challenges, uh, I assume like so much of what the government tries to do in terms of well-intentioned, there have been some uh, court challenges to these kinds of programs? Uh, they have been. And what's interesting is that the, the federal government's treated a little bit differently than the states and, and municipalities. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, basically has said that, you know, when you look at, at the 14th Amendment, and I've got to see if I can remember my history correctly, but, you know, post-Civil Rights Amendment, um, you know, Congress was given some broad prescriptive powers to try to rectify, uh, you know, some of the things that they were, uh, behaviors they were seeing in the South. That power has been given to Congress, but not given to states. So the federal government, their efforts in terms of this kind of social engineering generally have been able to uh, successfully defend things like minority business enterprises and women-owned businesses and that sort of thing? Well, I just think they're given a lot more leeway. Um, so, so the courts, when you're looking at states and municipalities and you have an MDB, uh, M, uh, NWBE program or DBE program, the court is going to want to see some evaluation by a state or a municipality about the need, and then a program that's tailored to address that need. Uh, in contrast, the feds, uh, you know, the court has been much more deferential, uh, not applying the same strict scrutiny test that's been applied to states or municipalities. My recollection is it wasn't that many years ago that the uh, United States Supreme Court looked at the uh, city of Richmond case. Let's talk about that a little bit. Could you, could you outline the facts of, uh, of that case? 
Yeah, so City of Richmond, Richmond v. J.A. Croson Companies, one of the, the major cases dealing with the constitutionality of these kinds of programs. Um, and Richmond, you know, they had a, they put in a program where they said that, you know, for our dollars, prime contractors need to subcontract at least 30% of that dollar amount to, you know, one or more minority business enterprises. Um, and they claimed that the plan was going to be remedial. Uh, and the proponents were saying, look, look at the overall population of Richmond. It's, it's half black. Uh, but only 0.67% of the prime construction contracts are being given to minority businesses. There's something wrong there. And, and while that may be a, um, you know, a noteworthy goal to try to accomplish, the Supreme Court said Richmond was going about it wrong. What did the Supreme Court want Richmond and, I suppose, other municipalities to do that they, they weren't attacking the right way? So, so the flaw in what the city of Richmond did was looking at they're basically comparing apples and oranges. They were taking a look at the number of prime construction contracts and comparing it to the overall population. And the Supreme Court, Supreme Court said, that's, that's the wrong comparison. You need to look at the number of minority-owned businesses that could do the work and compare that number to the ones that were actually getting the work. And that's the thing you need to try to address. And you need to tailor your program to close that gap, not compare the number of prime contracts given to minority businesses versus the overall population. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the world of insurance and how it fits in uh, to <laughs> efforts to uh, ensure diversity and uh, inclusion in the um, construction business. Yeah, there are two primary tools, uh, you know, employment practices, liability insurance, EPLI, and DNO policies that really address uh, in, you know, the kind of activities that we're talking about. Well, let's break that down. Um, EPLI is a type of insurance that an employer purchases to protect them from wrongful activities in the, uh, in the labor force. How does that insurance work and what are some of the, the major exclusions? Well, um, you know, the, they're designed primarily to address, as you said, wrongful termination claims, discrimination claims, sexual harassment claims, and retaliation. And you know the, the key facts when you're looking at a kind of policy, EPLI policies aren't written on, cust on, on standardized forms. So you're going to get a very custom kind of insurance product. And you know the things you're going to really look at are defining what, uh, who, what the insured is, make sure that's defined well, defining what wrongful acts are, and defining what claims are. That's a whole other podcast to get into all the details of that. But the main takeaway on EPLI policies is they're tailored and you need to look at them very carefully. Would that kind of EPLI coverage defend a company who is um, subject to a substantial class action like has happened uh, not only in the construction industry, but in other industries? You know, I think so. Um, but I will tell you a full confession that in my day-to-day -day world, I look at insurance contracts when I, you know, as I'm working through different claims that I've got. Uh, but, but it's certainly something that I would encourage everyone to talk to a professional who kind of focuses on it on a daily basis. But I do think, you know, if, if you've got claims related to these kinds of issues, whether, you know, what the vehicle shouldn't matter, uh, the matter, the, what should matter is whether or not it fits within the definitions in the policy. What if a management employee intentionally acts to harm or discriminate against a lower ranking employee. Is that the kind of stuff that an EPLI policy could answer to? Well, you know, it depends on the policy, but there have been some some determinations that intentional acts are not covered. And so, 
there is always a discussion, and there, that needs to be one of the points that you're looking at when you're writing these policies of making sure that you understand what is covered and isn't. And if you want to try to broaden to make sure intentional acts are covered, uh, you need to be sure to be looking for that and uh, working to get the policy drafted in a way that's going to get you the coverage you're looking for. What about directors and officers insurance? How does that fit in? Well, DNO policies, uh, you know, they, they govern, as they say, directors and officers, and often, you know, directors and officers, uh, you know, can be uh, the actors that are being accused of improper employment behavior, and you know, those kinds of policies will kick in, just like the EPLI policies will kick in. As we get to the end of today's episode, let's talk about practical things that you talk to your clients about and our listeners can talk to their clients about. What are some of the practical tips that you think are important in connection with helping your clients implement, not just talk about, diversity and inclusion? Well, again, not just talking about, but talking about it is the first step, that you do need to start that dialogue. But once you've made the decision to start looking at that, I'll talk to clients about engaging consultants. There are really good consultants out there who can help you evaluate where your company is and where it can go uh, when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Uh, I'll talk to clients about participating in implicit bias training. Uh, I'll talk to companies about examining their hiring practices and ways in which they can make sure that they're not losing good candidates uh, you know, based on some implicit biases in their process. Those are some of the things that uh, we talk to them about, and there's certainly several others. Let's talk a little bit about that term, implicit bias. What does that mean? Well, we all have our implicit biases, and basically they're biases that sometimes we don't even recognize that we have. You know, I'll give an example. You know, I was in college, and I, I had a professor try to explain racism from his perspective, and he told a story of his parked at an intersection uh, with his mom in the car, and, you know, uh, four young black men walk across the, the crosswalk right in front, and she flips it over and locks the door locks. And, of course, you know, those young men heard that and were very offended by that and probably had every right to do so. But, but in her mind, it, she, she didn't even probably think about it. It was probably that bias, that fear uh, was something ingrained in her that uh, is implicit. It's just something that's there. That, and that's the thing we all need to combat is that part of ourselves that may not recognize uh, that we are judging others not based on, you know, as Dr. King would say, the content of their character. Does that kind of training work in your experience? I think it does. I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say in my own experience, um, you know, when I really started getting more involved in looking at this issue and going through some training myself, I started noticing when I go to meetings, for example, I went and toured a, a local high school in South Dallas, uh, which is an area of town that is uh, where a lot of people of color live. And I go and hear the presentation uh, from the school administrators, and it occurred to me that the three school administrators were all black talking to a group of white people coming to tour the school. And that kind of dynamic, if I hadn't been trained, I'm not sure I would have noticed it before. And you'll start noticing that in your interactions, uh, in different meetings you're in. And I do think when you start becoming aware of it, you can start catching yourself going, am I, am I reacting in a way that's sort of... I didn't even realize I was doing, and I do think that training can help start that conversation. Our guest today has been Lance Curry. Lance, thanks for your time. It was very interesting. Thank you so much. Really do appreciate it. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. 
No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today. 